0: Mm hmm Wowee. That was awesome, wasn't it? Round of applause again, please. That was great. Thank you, guys. Tremendous. So we're coming to the conclusion of our journey through Luke and Acts. And for those of you who have enjoyed the journey like I have, and I'm sure that's many of us, you have seen something of the tapestry that God wove and continues to weave using the threads of mercy and grace. You see them demonstrated in the life of Jesus. You see them articulated in the lives of the disciples. And you see them beautifully illustrated in the life of Paul. Today, we're going to look one last time at Paul's own testimony of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And in doing this, we're doing something that Luke wanted us to do when he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. He wanted us to consider the conversion of Paul multiple times so that we could see this this jewel that God had cut from the rough from a variety of different angles. And today we're going to look at it from a fresh angle, because we're going to hear the words of Paul as he makes his defense before King Agrippa and Bernice and uh, the governor of Judea, and as he makes his defense, we're going to just look at his own summary of that defense and use that as our way of understanding what God has for us today. There's a few wild illustrations in the middle of it, kind of practicing a few things for Celebration Sunday when we get together all ages, so... um, Strap yourself in for those as well a little bit later. We're going to be here in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9. Paul has been invited to speak at a public auditorium. This is a very grand environment, at Caesarea Maritima. There on the coast of the Mediterranean, a beautiful environment, noble statues and sculptures everywhere, wonderful buildings, great viaducts and aqueducts. That, um, that frame this really beautiful place. The good and the great have been gathered, and Paul continues with his defense in verse 9. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priests. About noon, O king. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So there's Paul's testimony, perhaps the fullest and most expressive of all of his testimonies, perhaps the most detailed account found in all of Scripture of what it was that was going on internally with this newly born apostle, a man who up until the moment that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was opposing everything that Jesus stood for with an obsessive desire to overturn the work of Jesus. That's his own words. It was an obsession. And now, with this encounter with Jesus, everything has changed. In one of the very last writings that Paul writes before his death in Rome, not the time in Rome that he'll soon engage in and we'll see recorded here in Acts. But maybe ten years later, at the end of Nero's reign, when he's attempting to change the disposition of the people of Rome towards him by blaming the Christians for all that's bad in the empire and in the city. Paul says this in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. that there are two things that are going on in his life when he encounters Jesus. There are two things that he reflects on when he thinks about the story of his faith. There are two key concepts. It's as though there are these two fundamental revelations that define who he is and what it is that he's become. He's found mercy for all that he's done in the past, And he has discovered grace for all that he is today. Mercy is something that deals with what has happened. Grace deals with everything that will and can happen. And it's very important that we understand this. Because here Paul is articulating his story in summary to his dear friend, and disciple and spiritual son, Timothy. And he says, For all of the things that I did, I was a blasphemer, a violent man, a persecutor of the church, someone who was hell-bent on opposing Jesus. For all of these things, I was given mercy. Now, mercy is very simply defined. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What did Paul deserve for his way of life? What did Paul deserve for his disposition towards Jesus? What did Paul deserve for the inner obsession and the outer rebellion? Well, he deserved punishment. That's what you deserve. Consequences of bad behavior are pretty much the same in every culture and every age. You get punished. Paul did not get what he deserved. He got mercy. So mercy is something that Paul received for the things that he had done. And you and I have the same mercy available to us. Your mercies are new every morning, says Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. Not a book that people tend to go to for a jolly, quiet read on a Sunday afternoon. But right there in the midst of it, there's this jewel of a statement. Mercies are new every day. Because great is your faithfulness. So the things that we've done, we have mercy for. And we do not get what we deserve. Punishment. Separation from God, of course, means that we're separating ourselves from the life source of the universe. God cannot be God if he's not creator. If he's creator, he must be the source and the overflowing fountain of all life that you see around you and all life beyond your perception. God is the source of life. If you cut yourself off from that source of life, obviously you die. If you pull the plug out of the outlet, the lights go off. It's just a standard consequence. What happened to Adam and Eve, and Paul articulates this beautifully in many of his writings, especially in Romans that we're going to look at in a moment. What happened with Adam and Eve was that God said to them, look, You and I are supposed to be partners in overseeing the creation that I've made. You're supposed to be my representatives. You're supposed to be my regents. You're supposed to be the stewards of all that I've made. And to do that, we need to have a close, loving, intimate partnership. And so that partnership will be defined by my love for you and by your freedom to choose my love and choose to love me back. Because a loving God, of course, in creating creatures, would naturally create freedom as the basis of that expression of love because without freedom, it can't really be called love. And so in freedom, God created us. And God said, look, I want you to be dependent upon me for your decisions. I want you to be dependent upon me for the, the balance of of coming to a solution about the things that together we're going to partner in. And so I want you to come to me for your decision-making process. But if you want to make freedom expressed as you finding your own solutions, then you'll die. Because you'll cut yourself off from me and the relationship of free love that you and I have expressed. And the way that the Lord designed this was that there was right there in the garden both a symbol of freedom and rebellion, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story. Adam and Eve make the wrong choice. They disconnect from the power source in the universe. They disconnect from the life source of creation, and they begin to die. That was the cause. Separation is, if you like, the state of humanity. And the symptoms of that reality are the sinful things that people do, that you and I do. And God, clearly revealing and articulating his nature throughout the whole of Scripture, chooses to have mercy on us by saying the consequences of death that are the consequences of separation from life I'm going to take upon myself when I send my son to die on your behalf so those are the simple elements of the gospel expressed through mercy everybody's heard it and most of us quite honestly have heard it so many times that it's over familiar Familiarity breeds contempt, my mother always used to say. Well, it's not that we're contemptuous of the gospel, it's just that we're not particularly kind of thinking that it's relevant for today. But it is an amazing thing that the the things that we've done in the past, the things that may not be as gross as those that Paul committed, but nevertheless the things that express our separation and alienation from God in the symptoms of sinful behavior have been dealt with by God's mercy. And it's an amazing thing. And when we reflect on it, it causes our hearts to swell with thanksgiving. But in the New Testament, another idea begins to develop. So important an idea that when Paul and others who are leaders in the church greet one another, they take this idea and they add it to the ancient greeting of the people of God. The ancient greeting of the people of God is shalom, peace be with you. Paul and the others who led the early church now say grace and peace to you. Because grace is the great revelation. Grace is the great story. Grace is The very thing that takes mercy beyond what mercy can achieve. Because mercy will give you the solution for the past, but will give you no resources for the future. Because it's designed to deal with the past. You're not getting what you deserve And obviously, if we're not getting what we deserve, then we're deserving something on the basis of past action. And so it's obviously to do with the past. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's not based on Behavior, it's not based on our action, it's not based on the past, it's based upon God's decision to give. God so loved the world that He gave. The disposition of God's loving character is to show us mercy for the past and grace for today. You don't get what you deserve from the past. But you do get what you don't deserve for today. Now, I know it sounds a little bit kind of tautological. It sounds a little bit as though... What are you saying again? So just just think about it for a moment. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting What you don't deserve. Grace, therefore, is enormously important. Because grace will cause us to escape the trammels and the entrapments of sin management. Praise God. You see, the whole of the Old Testament... And all of the story of the people of God, up until the point of Jesus, was all about sin management, was all about dealing with the things that we've done in the past. But now, because Jesus fundamentally dealt with everything that the past could hold over us, by ensuring that we will always have mercy because The sacrifice that he gave in paying the very thing that we deserved in his own death means that we can now look beyond the past and the management of our behavior yesterday and the hope that perhaps we won't do as much wrong today as we did yesterday and consider the great revelation of the life of Jesus. The law says John came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and from His grace we've received grace upon grace, and from His grace we've received grace upon grace. I am wait a minute, grace upon grace. What what is that? quite know what happened to my glasses this morning, but I was thinking that the Shekinah glory was in the room, but <laughs> maybe the Shekinah glory is in the room. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But um, grace. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, you'll turn to one of the, the most important chapters in the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible, all of it is the Word of God. But there is no document in human history that has changed more lives, that has shaped more cultures, that has caused the rising and falling of more empires than the letter to the Romans. It is undoubtedly the single most important piece of literature in all of human history. This is the zenith in all of God's revelation. It's all revelation. It's all revelation of God, and it's all unfolding revelation from the beginning to the end. But when you find the New Testament, you see the revelation of Jesus, and when you find Romans, you find a document that has shaped the very world in which we find ourselves. And in this great Himalayas, Of revelation in Romans there are gigantic peaks that seem as though they are so high that you need oxygen to be able to get to the top of them one of those chapters is chapter 5 you've got other chapters I know that you remember with great fondness turn to Romans chapter 5 And verse 1. And this morning we'll come to a deeper understanding of grace. That's my prayer. And as you come to a deeper understanding of grace, today, an important day marked on God's calendar for you, today will be a day when old things will be left behind and new things will be embraced in a way perhaps that you've never been able to do in the past because today you'll discover perhaps what it means for God to give you the provision of grace so that you can receive all things all things that he is so generously pouring out upon you Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this therefore since we have been justified through faith faith in the mercy of God. It's just as if I'd never sinned. We have peace with God, which means that the alienation is at an end, the separation is at an end, the, the, the sense of antagonism and antimony between the two of us is gone. Through whom We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace is a territory. Grace is a place. Grace is a location and you're able to stand in it. And when you stand in it, it makes all the difference. When you stand in it, it changes your disposition towards the world. It's as though you've been living in a howling wilderness. That's the the picture of alienation from God found in the Old Testament. You've You've been in a howling wilderness. Your very soul has been stripped naked by the erosive forces of the world. All that is around you seems to be against you. And in a moment, you cross from death into life and you come out of the desert, the howling wilderness, and into the provision of grace like an oasis. An oasis that is so particular and special that none of the winds of the desert are able to penetrate this place of goodness and provision and and love and security. And here, you've been given access. Maybe you'd seen other people from your position in the howling wilderness and you wondered why it was that there way of looking at the world was different to, to yours. Maybe, maybe you saw other members of your family. Maybe you saw your spouse and you wondered what it was that could possibly be different about them because they were approaching life differently to you. It was as though they lived in an oasis and you lived in the desert. But here, the, the day comes. You put your faith in Jesus and Jesus says, mercy for the past. And access into grace. And you step out of the desert into the oasis, you can't believe it. It's incredible. I'm allowed to live here. Not only are you allowed to live here, this is now your home. You're not just a visitor, you're not gonna have to go when it gets dark. You can stay here as long as you like. All that you see around you, all the provision of grace, is yours every minute of every day. God will continue to supply you with all of your needs. God will continue to bless you in your going out and in your coming in. God will bless you in such a way that you become familiar with God giving. And no longer do you fear God taking. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is amazing grace. And it's a territory. And you say, well, if it's a territory and you've gained access to it, can you leave it? Yes, in a sense you can. The writer to the Hebrews speaks about missing grace. In other words, there is a way in which we as Christians can have access to all kinds of things, but live as if those things are no longer available to us. Now, it's not that we don't have access into grace, it's just that we're not living in the benefit of it. Now, I've been going through therapy uh, for quite some time for my leg. And uh, yesterday I went to uh, an amazing acupuncturist. I mean... Quite honestly, I had no idea what acupuncture was and I still don't really know what it is. But it has an amazing effect and I've had all these other therapies, these kind of electrostatic things and the trainer at the gym helps me and all these different things, it's amazing. And my, my foot and ankle are not fully recovered. I don't have the strength back in the leg that I used to do and it's, it's coming back. But I don't need to limp anymore. I don't need to limp anymore. Because there's nothing to limp about. But I limp all the time. They pointed out as I was walking towards the prayer team this morning, they said, why are you limping? I went, oh. Because you see, I've become familiar with a particular pattern of behavior. And that pattern of behavior drags me back to old injuries, old pain, old hurts. And it's as though I'd never been healed. It's as though I've never actually gone through the process by which you no longer have to limp. Anybody anybody with me? So, grace is a place. You always have access to it. And sometimes, sadly, and perhaps foolishly, we do not benefit from all that grace provides because we find ourselves drawn back into old behavior that faces us away from grace toward the desert rather than toward grace and all of the provision of the oasis. So, let's have a little think. Grace is to mercy what Christmas is to an average day. None of the early Christians greeted one another with mercy and peace. Mercy is wonderful. It's amazing. But as we'll discover a little bit later, grace, not only on the occasion of you encountering mercy, but on every other occasion that you encounter grace afresh, grace says this to you, I'll see whatever it is that you need and I'll raise you, grace. That's what I'll do. It's almost as though, you know, we're, we're kind of playing poker with God. And we've got this one card and we're thinking, yeah, he's not going to be able to fix this one. And we kind of hold it to our chest and we think, yeah. Now, I mean, I don't know what you're like, but do you, are, you, are you like me? Do you get old regrets that bubble up to the top of your heart? from years ago. Where the heck did they come from? I mean, things like when I'm a teenager and there's these things kind of bubble up and I'm thinking, I'm so far away from being a teenager, I can't remember how many years it is from then till now. But somehow my heart has remembered and there's this little bloop. Bubbles up to the surface. It gives a rather noxious smell of the past. This is too close a reference to bubbles in the bath. Forgive me. (laughs) But this is something that happens to all of us, isn't it? It's as though... Our heart is wanting to say, I, I really love grace, but I don't know. Can you fix this? There's a great movie, an old movie, that for some reason I always remember when I think about this. You know, I'll, I'll see your sin and I'll raise your grace, that kind of a thing. Any, uh, any suggestions as to which movie it is? you know we talk about movies from time to time old old movie that kind of gives you this picture of you call that well, I'm so, well I'll show you this anybody remember this one call that a knife <laughs> do you remember that There he is, on the streets of New York, wearing his hat, Crocodile Dundee's there, and he's out there with a girl, and a guy comes up to him with a knife, and it's a switchblade, but of course he doesn't realize who he's taking on, and he says to the assailant, call that a knife, in his Australian brogue. And then from behind him, draws the most gigantic knife you have ever seen. I mean, how the heck did he even get it attached to his back? It's, it's bigger than a machete. Call that a knife? And the guy drops the knife and runs away. That's what grace is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to so overwhelm us with its presence that we give up arguing about whether we should deserve it, about whether we can possibly ever receive it. God wants us to be overwhelmed with grace. Because as you go later on in the chapter, it says this, For if by the trespass, Of one man this is verse 17 death reigned through that one man how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision just nudge your neighbor they're starting to drop off a bit say abundant provision just say that to your neighbor abundant provision if you're not near somebody shout to them abundant provision Those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. So, the territory that you're living in, the territory that you're standing in called grace, is not something that you're there as a visitor. It's not something that you're there as a kind of friend. It's not even something that you're there as a family member. You're supposed to be the monarch of the place that you live. You're supposed to reign in grace. You're supposed to walk around like you own it. And the abundance of its provision is overwhelming. So um, let's have a look at that for a minute. I have uh, here a little abundant provision. Now, any guesses how this is going to go on Celebration Sunday? Because this is just kind of a trial run for Celebration Sunday. So, so, um, so the thing is, Stephen. No, sorry, sorry. So here's the, here's the provision of grace. And this rather nice white ice bucket is your life. Now, if it were abundant provision, it would be full, wouldn't it? And if it were full, it would get to the point of overflowing, would it not? So that when somebody bumped into you, they would bump into what judgment would they bump into judgment would they bump into disdain would they bump into criticism you can talk to me it's all right would they would they bump into a nice person maybe if they bumped into a person who has encountered abundant grace what would they bump into what was that say that again now here's the thing when I go out there as I do a lot into this place we call Dayton and the greater Miami Valley, I notice the people I talk to think that when they bump into Christians, they're going to bump into something other than grace. They're going to bump into judgment. They're going to bump into a political opinion. They're going to bump into a particular perspective, that has a kind of cultural framework, and all of those things I think are fine, but it's amazing how few the number of people I encounter expect grace when they meet a Christian. And you know why? Because Christians don't believe in grace. They believe in the amazing character of grace. They believe in the remarkable circumstances in which grace has been made available to us. They're fully aware that grace is in Jesus. But for some reason, we as Christians, me, me, we as Christians find it difficult to be those who will be not just the recipients of grace, but the messengers and conduit of grace. And the reason is, of course, is because our hearts are not full of grace. Now, why is that? Well, it's that old limp that constantly threatens me. It's that old limp that constantly threatens you. It's that feeling that there's never quite enough. If there's never quite enough, then you're always a little worried about what it is that you might lose. If there's never quite enough, then you're always constantly measuring what it is that you might give out. But if the grace is abundant and continuous and always available, then of course, everything begins to change for you and for the people around you. There's one more thing to say about grace before we move into communion and Chad is going to come and do that for us. I'm hoping that these Graphic pictures will settle in your mind and your heart and help you as you encounter tomorrow. But perhaps this is the most important element of grace that as yet we need to explore. This is what it says at the end of this amazing chapter 5 of Romans, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase wait what what i'll just read it again I us just make sure i've got that right the law was added so that the trespass might increase What is God up to? What God is up to is this getting us to realize that our nature is a nature that is in constant opposition to His, and that that nature will, when it's unchecked, always manifest behavior that is different to His holiness. Our behavior will always look different to him. But we're clever and we manage our behavior and we keep it under wraps. And so we think that we're okay. And I'm not talking about pre-Christians here, I'm talking about us. We hold it under wraps, we, we keep it, we keep it down, we say, don't say that. People will think you're a sinner. <laughs> oh, my friend. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been fixated on elephants unless the person said, don't think about elephants. Just don't think about them. Are you, not, are you making sure you're not thinking about elephants? Don't think about their big floppy ears. Don't think about that big long trunk. Don't think about their tusks. Don't think about their huge feet. Don't think about their size. Don't think about them. Stop thinking about the elephant. And of course, having been given this amazing, noble instrument of the brain by our Creator so that we could partner with Him in overseeing the world, our brain fixates on it and says, oh, oh, oh. coveting, oh, mm, what could I covet? And the reason that God did it is so that sin might be called sin, says so that sin might be revealed as sin, so that the alienation of our lives might be revealed by the behavior that articulates that alienation, and in that articulation we will come to the realization that we can't do it by ourselves. We can't modify our behavior enough to get ourselves back to God. We can't do it. So God gave law so that what's real about us would become evident about us. So that what's real about us would become evident about us. But then listen to this. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That might be the most anemic translation of the most glorious verse in the whole Bible. When I was a, when I was a, a young, young, young man, they, the, the athletics coach at school said, um, you're not very good at running, but you might be good at jumping, because we've noticed that your legs are the longest in the school. And so they explored what it was that I could jump. And I became the school representative for high jump and long jump. And what they called in those days, this is Dickens' era, was hop, skip, and a jump. Hop, skip, and a jump. A triple jump. I was really good at it. I could outleap everybody. Until I went to the county championship and I was like last. Because here comes this person who's been trained in it for a long time, and he's got legs like pines. And he just completely it's like it's like that old television program, you know, the six million dollar man where he goes. And he just leapt. And Wherever it was that I could leap, he could leap so much further. Where sin leapt as far as it could, grace outleapt it by such a distance that you couldn't even see it anymore. Grace not only outleapt sin, but when you looked back, you couldn't even see sin. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And so, what does this look like on a day to day practical basis? Well, let me just try pouring some of this water out of here a bit. Oh, there we go. Chris, I'm not going to let this all go on your stage. It's OK. So, here's, um, here's you. And um, hopefully, this string will hold it. So, here's you, yeah? Everybody good? This is you. There's a lot of gritted teeth around the building. Because you're all looking at it going, ah. So, this is you, yeah? And, um, you know, Monday comes. The cat's sick. Your spouse is a pain. Work is a precipitous peak that you can't climb, and grace goes out the window. You forget grace. And you start to go back to your old nature, which is to focus on yourself, focus on what you want. You don't really care about other people. Yeah. And you get to the end of Monday, and it doesn't feel like you're a Christian anymore. As that rather unknown song from Hillsong so beautifully articulates, on Sunday we had revival, and on Monday I couldn't even find my Bible. It's like it's all gone. So what happens? What does God do? Well, God says, silly Billy, of course my grace is always available to you. And the only thing that you can achieve by attempting to cut yourself off is to shorten the string between me and you. anybody get what I'm talking about here? Every time you step away from grace, God says, ah, but you can't. Because it's all down to me, you see. It's not up to you. And so the only thing that can happen here is that you get the realization that however far you want to stretch away from grace, I'm always going to pursue you. Because you see, I'm a God of goodness and mercy, and goodness and mercy will pursue you every day of your life, and I'll run you down. I'll pursue you to the very end of the day, and the bit of string that you think you've severed, I'll tie it back together again, and it'll be a shorter distance between me and you. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And so today, when you consider the things that God has done for you, and you consider that the relationship of joyful peace that he wants you to experience every day is a gift to you for that day, every day into the future. That mercy has taken care of yesterday that grace is available for today. My prayer for you is that your heart turns towards the only response that is appropriate. The word Eucharist is the word that's used universally for the celebration of communion amongst Christians. And the word Eucharist simply means this, I return to you All the grace that you've given me, knowing that even as I give it to you, it's being returned to me still more. In English, we call it thanksgiving. The Greek word is somewhat more illustrative of the reality. The grace has been poured out on us, and we want to give that grace back because we're so grateful. And we know that as we give it back, our hands are open to receive still more and our lives are overflowing with the abundance of grace. And as our heart opens and swells with the joy of the knowledge of God's grace, our heart becomes the receptacle, the container of grace, that when people bump into us, becomes the conduit of grace to them. May it be so, Lord, and may it be so today.